I am such a proponent of expository preaching that I almost feel like I need to apologize when I don't preach an expository message, and I probably have preached fewer than five in the four and a half years that I've been here, Uh, and now this is the second one in less than a month that I'm preaching on uh, a, a topic, but it's a topic that's very important. My commitment to expository preaching, I think, means that eventually we will get to every, every subject in the Bible, but I uh, thought that it was important for us to think about church discipline this morning. We are having a members meeting tonight and adding 19 new members, and so uh, many of you have never heard a sermon on church discipline. I know when Doug Williams was the pastor here, he preached and taught on church discipline, but Probably most of the people in this room right now were not members of the church when Doug Williams was here. And uh, church discipline, so this may be the first time you have heard this. And so I hope to show you that it is something that is taught in the scriptures. My experience with, uh, with church discipline in the past has afforded me enough stories and illustrations that I think I could fill an entire hour with stories of how church discipline has, has obviously worked. It doesn't always obviously work, but I have seen numerous insta- in- instances where church discipline has been uh, reclamatory, if that is a word. Somebody is reclaimed from the sin for which they were disciplined. I think I could fill the hour with such stories, but I'll just tell you two or three. So uh, several years ago, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine, and we were talking about church discipline, and he shared this story with me. He said, there was a young lady in the church who was uh, not married and uh, became known that she was pregnant. And so the pastor said, I spoke with her, and I said, uh, obviously, uh, it'll be a short while until everyone knows that you have been sexually active. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know about the man in this story, just that what I know about is the girl who was a member of the church. And the pastor said to her, uh, obviously this is something that our church does not approve of, and uh, so you are going to need to come before the church and publicly uh, repent and apologize uh, if, if you have indeed repented, which she had. And uh, so... On a Sunday night, then uh, she came before the church and uh, confessed her sin. And the pastor said to the congregation, Now everyone who is a member of this church who is in favor of forgiving her and restoring her to full fellowship, please rise to your feet. And the whole church stood up. And he said to the young girl, Now turn around here and look at this. This means that we forgive you. And church, uh, this means that when you hear any kind of gossip about this young lady, you have a responsibility to, to say, yes, she made a mistake, but here is the very brave thing that she did to, to make that right. And, and so there is, a, now everybody, everybody come around and, uh, and love on this young lady. And so they, it was a very emotional service. Everybody comes around and hugs her, and they're all crying and receiving her back into the fellowship. And uh, I think it was that very night, 
when he went home, he received a, a telephone call, and uh, there was a, a voice of a young girl on the other end, and she said, Pastor, I uh, want you to know that similar to the young lady, she called her by name, similar to the young lady who came before the church tonight, I too am pregnant. And I have an appointment this week to get an abortion. But after seeing the way the church forgave and loved on this girl, I'm going to have my baby. Now, that is a, that's a very happy story of how, I mean, that story was probably told to me 25 years ago. Somewhere there is a 25-year-old who would have been murdered in her mother's womb if it had not been for the diligent practice of church discipline. When I was uh, pastoring a church in the cornfields of Illinois, they, uh, we began the process of uh, practicing church discipline, and a part of it was cleaning up our roles. We had several hundred people on our roles, and only maybe one-third of our church role was actually active and coming to church. We never knew where probably 20% of them were, whether they were dead or alive. And uh, so we, we uh, set up, we're going to try to contact everyone that we can. We're going to visit the people who live in the community who, who should come and who could come if they wanted to. And one of the people that we visited was uh, the divorced wife of a man who continued to come to church faithfully. They had been divorced for some time, it, you know, maybe a year or two. It wasn't long. The children, their children, adult children, continued to come to the church that I pastored, but the, the wife, the divorced wife, never came. And so we went and visited her and said, we, we, we want you to come back to church. I know it may be uncomfortable coming where your divorced spouse is, but, but we want you to come. We want you to come. You're not going to flourish out here on your own. Come back to church. But if you don't come back to church, then we are going to remove your name from the roll because we think that membership means something. And she started coming back to church. And it wasn't long until she was sitting with her ex-husband. Neither one of them had ever married, remarried. And uh, so after a few months, then they got married again, and they're still married to this day. And that is because of church discipline. Because we said, we expect you to come to church if you're a member of our church. And then one more story. Uh, I was getting ready to preach uh, a sermon on church discipline. And uh, in the days before that sermon, a mother in the church came, a mother of a grown daughter, who came to talk to me in my office. And she was weeping. And she said, my daughter is pregnant. Daughter's about 21 years old. So my daughter is pregnant. She's coming home to have the baby because she's still on my insurance. And so the girl that I'd never met, who lived hundreds of miles away, came back. And uh, so I thought, well, I don't want this girl to think that I'm picking on her from the pulpit. But I am going to preach on church discipline this coming Sunday. So on the probably Friday or Saturday before the Sunday, I went and visited with her and her mother. And I said... I'm preaching on church discipline this Sunday, and I just want you to know I'm not trying to do my pastoral work with you from the pulpit, so that's why I came to visit with you. Uh, You are still a member of our church, and of course, it's obvious that you have been sexually active and you're not married, 
And uh, in order to be restored to fellowship with the church, uh, you need to come before the church and apologize for your immoral activity and ask the church to forgive you. That is, if you are repentant and seeking the Lord's forgiveness, which she was. So the whole time I'm talking this, this this beautiful young 21-year-old girl is sitting there looking at me as I'm saying, you got to come before the church, and her eyes are about the size of teacups, you know, just great looking at me. And so I said, well, what do you think about all this? And she said, I think you're right. And uh, so... On Sunday night, she came before the church and apologized, and it was one of the most powerful, spirit-filled experiences of the time that I was pastor there. When her mother came to my office weeping, she said, I told my daughter all these dreams that we've had of you having a big wedding and the way we've talked about it through the years, all that is gone now. All that is gone because you've done this. Now, her mother was very loving, so what I've just shared may sound like she was callous, but she was not callous. She was very loving, but she was saying there are consequences to this action, and one of the consequences is you are not going to be able to have that big wedding that you've always dreamed about. And, you know, I'll come back to the conclusion of the story in just a minute. If we had not required that young lady to come before the church and confess her sin and seek reconciliation with the church then here's what would have happened. No one would have known what to do. People would not have known, are we supposed to give her a gift? Uh, We can't have a shower. I mean, she grew up in this church. Everybody knows her and loves her. We're not going to have a shower for her because she's, she's not supposed to be pregnant. But when she came before the church and confessed her sin and sought reconciliation, then that cleared the air. That cleared the way for everybody to say, oh, now we're going to have a shower for her. And that also cleared the way so that several months later, after the baby was born, there was an enormous tent that was pitched in the field beside our church, and she had that great big wedding that they had always dreamed about. You know why it was possible? It was possible because of church discipline. When people hear about church discipline, they have a tendency to think, oh, that's so mean. But no, it's not mean. As I prayed in the prayer, we need to make sure that we are not trying to be nicer than Jesus himself is. In the process of, uh, I'll tell that story in just a second. So like I said, I, I could talk a whole hour with just illustrations. But let me give you this definition of church discipline. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it. I'm going to go back and explain it, and then I'll read it again. Here's the definition of church discipline. Church discipline is the members of a church watching over one another in love for the purpose of encouraging holiness and discouraging disorderly behavior in each member and in the church as a whole. When less drastic measures have failed, those members of the church who refuse to repent of sin and submit to the church must be expelled from the church and turned over to Satan. Now let me explain a few elements of that. So what everyone hears is you're going to kick people out. But there's really a lot more to church discipline than that. Before, I mean, eventually that can happen. But what happens before that is that we are, we are engaged in a church that says we are, in, we are engaged in one another's lives. I know about what's going on in your life. You know about what's going on in my life. 
I grant you permission to, uh, to help form me in sanctification. If you see that something is wrong in me, then I give you permission to speak to me about that. I want us to, to work together towards pursuing holiness in the Lord. So we want to encourage holiness and we want to discourage disorderly behavior in each member and in the church as a whole. And so part of church discipline is uh, just that kind of member care, pastor to member, member to member, members to pastors, that we are uh, providing an environment where holiness, the pursuit of the Lord, is encouraged and expected. And we know if I stop doing that, I've got some people at church who are going to step in and speak to me about it. And I want it to be that way. But when, when finally lesser measures have proven ineffective and someone refuses to repent of sin and submit to the church, then that person must be expelled from the church and turned over to Satan. Now, the big question is, is church discipline taught in the Bible? That's my first point. The second point is, what does the Bible say about how church discipline is to be performed? The third point is a question, why has the idea of church discipline become so offensive to many Christian people? And then finally, what happens when a church does not practice church discipline? So first of all, the big question, is church discipline taught in the Bible? Here's the story I started to tell you a few minutes ago. Uh, when, uh, when I had devised a plan for revising our roles and beginning to practice church discipline, I met with uh, the, the deacons of the church. Uh, like many Baptist churches, the deacons of that church served essentially in the capacity of elders, and they were good men. They, uh, there were seven of them, and several of them would have been elders if we had elders. As it was, I was the lone elder and uh, met with these men who were very wise. I valued their wisdom. And uh, so I, I laid out the plan that I had, and uh, I said, now, I don't want this to be just Brother Jim out there on a limb forcing this through. I want to know that I have the support of the leadership in the church, so what do you guys think about it? And I started with the man on my left, a good man, and, uh, and he said, well, you, know, you want to know what I think about it? You go through with this, and you're going to be looking for a job. I said, I've, I've been doing a little bit of work on this, and I think that there are 27 people in the church who will leave the church if you start removing their sons and daughters and their brothers and sisters and their mothers and fathers. You start removing them from the role, and they're going to be so offended. We're going to lose 27 people, and uh, 27 people in a church that has 120 in attendance on Sunday is a big, a big chunk. And I said to the man, well, you know, you said if I, if I go through with this, I'll be losing my job. There are some things that are worth losing your job over. I said, let me ask you this. Is it taught in the Bible? And the man said, yeah, it's taught in the Bible. But I said, stop right there. If it is taught in the Bible, then now we've got a decision. Do we want to be Christ's church or do we want to be our church? Because if we want to be Christ's church, then we need to do what Christ has taught us to do, even though it may be uncomfortable for us. And, um, and so I, I can tell you more stories about what happened at that church. But here's the question. Is it taught in the Bible? Uh, 
Well, for my first scripture reading this morning, I read to you from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. And just to remind you, that's when Jesus says, if there's a problem between you and somebody, first of all, you go to them yourself and try to get things made right. If you can't get things made right, then take somebody else with you, that in the company of two or three witnesses, everything may be established. Now, so far, I don't think he's talking about church discipline. I think he's just talking about the normal Christian life. This is the way that you've got to be when, when you're having a fuss with someone who's a fellow believer. You've got to try to make it right. You can't just go on being mad at each other all the time. Uh, try to make it right. If, if they won't listen to you, take somebody else, somebody that maybe they respect, someone that your mutual friends. Try to make it right. And then Jesus says the third step is, if they will not hear the church, take it to the church. And if they won't hear the church, then treat them as a Gentile and as a tax collector. And those were groups of people who were ostracized from from Jewish culture. The Gentiles were not allowed to be part of the Jewish community unless they converted to Judaism. And the tax collectors were people who were deeply unpopular and were excluded from the synagogues. Uh, so that's Matthew 18, 15 through 18. I also read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says, When you are met together and the Spirit of the Lord is with you, then expel the person from you. There was someone who was living in sexual immorality. He was living with his father's wife, not his own mother, but his father had remarried. And then this, this man had taken up with his father's wife and Paul says that's the sort of sexual immorality that even the Gentiles don't put up with. And so you have got to, you know, it's not your responsibility to judge everyone outside the church, but it is your responsibility to judge people inside the church. And uh, so when you're met together and the spirit of, of Jesus is with you, then expel this person and hand them over to Satan. So when someone is handed over to Satan... It is a way of saying you are no longer under the protection of the protection that God extends to his church. Outside the church, you are liable to the attacks of Satan in a way that you are protected from as long as you are within the church. And so expelling someone from the church is turning them over to Satan. It's not a mean thing, he says, so that their flesh, their flesh will be destroyed so that their spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And so the idea is we want them to be reclaimed, but that it's, it's definitely taught in the Bible. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, here's what the Bible says. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Okay, I don't want to treat you like you're stupid, but just answer this question in your mind. What are you supposed to do to every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received? What are you supposed to do? What's it say here? You're supposed to withdraw. And then verse 14, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Okay, what are you supposed to do if someone does not obey the word of the Lord? And why are you supposed to do it? 
Don't keep company with him so that he may be ashamed. Verse 15. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So this doesn't mean that you're saying you're an enemy. It's a way of saying this is the way that the people of God are instructed to treat one another. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20. It's very short, so listen to it. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Now, I would say that this is one of the features of church discipline that is less drastic than exclusion. Rebuke. And if necessary, rebuke in public, which is the case here. Rebuke in, in the presence of all. And the re- why? That the rest also may fear. So it's a way of saying to everybody else, We love you too much to let you live like this. And you cannot live like this and be a member of our church in good standing. Please repent. And if any the rest of you are considering this, just know that we're going to hold you accountable. Titus chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So in 1 Timothy 5.20, it was rebuke them so that others may fear. But here it is, rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply. So I'm asking the question and answering the question, is it taught in the Bible? One more verse of Scripture. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Okay, that gives us some guidance there. First admonition, second admonition. But if they still won't repent, reject a divisive man, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, I don't think that this is an inviolable principle. So that is that you have to rebuke them first, rebuke them a second time, and then expel them. Or, as Jesus said, first of all, go to them by yourself. Secondly, take someone with you. And thirdly, tell it to the church. If they won't listen to the church, then the church must, uh, must treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. I don't think that that is an inviolable principle because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul skips all the preliminaries and says, this sin is so obvious and so bad, you must immediately expel the person from among you. So he knows that it's wrong. You know that it's wrong. Expel the person from among you. But if it is not an an, an outlandish, scandalous sin, then I think that out out of love and patience, we try to visit with the person, try to talk to the person, get them to repent, and then as a last resort, bring it before the church. So I've already gotten into my second point, which is what does the Bible say about how church discipline is to be performed? And uh, Jesus said, in your personal relationships, first of all, privately, it's your responsibility to go to him and confront him about it. Don't ignore it. Don't gossip about it. Restoration is the goal. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, if, if you see a brother who is overtaken in the fault, 
Those of you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Restore that person. That's the idea. So church discipline is not about get away. Church discipline is about please come back. When we were going through uh, the beginning phases of church discipline at the church that I pastored in Illinois, one day my daughter Elizabeth and I, she was about nine years old, we stopped at a yard sale and uh, I saw one of my elderly members who was there. She was pretty faithful in coming on Sunday mornings. And so I went up to her and called her by name and we, we greeted and she, and she said, Oh, Brother Jimmy, you would not believe what they're doing at the church. She said, That pastor down there is going around the community kicking people out and telling them not to come back. And uh, I said, who do you think you're talking to? (laughs) And she said, why, you're Jimmy Duncan, aren't you? I said, no, I'm the man that you've been talking about, and you've been saying things that are not true. You need to repent of telling lies. But uh, that was kind of the the idea of, well, you know, that preacher's going through the the countryside telling people don't come back to church. No, it's the exact opposite. Everyone that we visited, we said, we'd love for you to come back. Please come back to church. But church membership means something. And so if you're going to come back, then you do have to be faithful in attendance. You do have to keep the promises that you made when you became a member. And, um, but, you know, go, go to the person privately at first if you can. Secondly, take someone with you. Uh, But finally, then it's necessary to tell it to the church. And then it may be necessary for the church to withdraw fellowship and deliver the person over to Satan. Again, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, hear the word of the Lord. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now again, I just want to be very elementary about this. What does the Apostle Paul tell the church at Corinth to do with this unrepentant brother? He says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I did not write that. None of the elders at this church wrote that. But you've got to believe something about it. And uh, I think it's clear what it does mean. If he repents, then restore him. This is the only instance in the Bible that we have of church discipline being administered. And happily, it appears that it was successful in the reclamation of the brother that they disciplined. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, let me read that to you. It's, uh, it's the way church discipline should end up. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so the idea is, if someone repents, forgive him. Don't keep on treating him like a pariah, like someone that is an enemy. No, receive him back. If you keep on treating him like an outsider, then you might cause him to be overwhelmed with sorrow. And that's not what we want. We want someone to repent and then restore him or her to complete fellowship. Now, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, concludes with a uh, somewhat puzzling statement when he says, uh, whatever you confirm on earth shall have been confirmed in heaven. I think that that teaching is, when you administer church discipline according to my teaching, then I, in heaven, will own it to be my will and I, I will reinforce that discipline when you, when you are administering discipline according to the teaching of my word. Third question, why has the idea of church discipline become so offensive to many Christian people? First of all, our minds have been shaped by a culture that routinely rebels against authority and refuses to accept personal responsibility. That really probably should have been two points. The first one, that we are shaped by a culture that routinely rebels against authority. They ain't nobody going to tell me what to do, is a very common sentiment. And so to think that those those nosy people down there at the church are going to tell me to stop doing this or to start doing this, no, not going to happen. Uh, But the church actually has been invested with authority. And then the second thing is that in our culture, people refuse to accept personal responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault why I can't do this or why I am doing that. It's always someone else's fault. It hasn't been so long ago that our society knew real kings, real masters and bosses, and their authority was respected and feared. Some of us do not want anyone telling us what we may or may not do, not even God. And we have become reluctant to either assign or accept blame. I've mentioned this before, but I find it interesting that uh, in, in his famous work, The Republic, Plato, the philosopher, said, in a pure democracy, the time will come when people will not even make their animals obey them. Because in a pure democracy, the idea becomes increasingly prevalent that my opinion is as good as yours and you can't tell me what to do. I don't care who you are, you can't tell me what to do. And that that attitude even comes to, I, I can't really tell my dog what to do. I mean, who am I? Why, did, why am I the master and why is he the dog? I'm not going to make him obey me. And I see, that, I see that kind of thing all the time where people will not make their animals obey them. You see it in Walmart and Kroger when you see that people will not make their children obey them. Part of the problem is, it's like, who gave me the authority to tell this child what to do? Well, God did. But but in this this culture, it seems high-handed for a church to say, you can't live that way. 
well, you just hide in the bushes and watch me, is the kind of the reaction. I'm not going to have you telling me what to do. So that's one reason why the idea of church discipline has become so offensive to many Christian people. Uh, when, when I was interviewing for the job at, uh, at the church in the cornfields, I read, their, I read their statement of faith, I read their confession and bylaws, and I said uh, to the, one of the committees that I was meeting with, I said, well, I see that your, your constitution and bylaws uh, has a very fine statement on church discipline, and I believe that, I will preach that. Do you practice it? And one of those very fine men said, well, we don't really want people looking into our lives, and so we don't really look into other people's lives either. So, no, we don't. And well, that's, that's not the attitude that we're supposed to have as Christians. We're not supposed to be afraid that people are going to look into our lives and find out what we've been doing. And um, that we, we, just, we just want to, I, I will make up my own mind is a very prevalent uh, perspective. But another reason why the church discipline has become so offensive is that there has been a lack of biblical teaching on church discipline. Some, pa- some preachers are afraid to preach it. Uh, I, I confess that uh, look, uh, preaching this sermon, I, I did not approach it with the same sort of excitement that I usually approach the preaching of God's Word. Like This is an uncomfortable thing. I'm likely to uh, have people in the congregation who think, well, that's mean. And uh, you're mean. I don't want people to think I'm mean. And uh, so some preachers are afraid to preach it. Some pastors want to brag about how many members they have in their churches. And success in the pastorate is often measured by numbers. And so it's not uncommon for a church to have 500 people on the roll and 50 people coming to church. Uh, Theology has become man-centered rather than God-centered. There is also a fear of abuse. So, you know, if, if, we start, if we start kicking people out of the church, where is it going to end? Uh, we must look to the Spirit and to the Word for guidance. Discipline is to be administered by the church, not by individuals. So I don't have the authority to expel anyone from the church. Even the Apostle Paul did not have that authority. He told the church at Corinth, when you are met together, you do it. Which, by the way, is a pretty powerful argument for uh, independent church government rather than a bishopric uh, like Episcopalians or Methodists have or Presbyteries like the Presbyterians have. Paul certainly had the kind of authority that a a member of the Presbytery would have had or that one of the bishops would have had, and he could have said, kick him out. But he says, when you are met together, you do it. You have a responsibility as one of God's churches to carry out God's will. Uh, In most cases where a church has practiced practiced church discipline, there are safeguards that are installed that keep keep abuses from happening. Uh, There is, furthermore, a fear that disciplined persons will be permanently offended. Uh, So the the way that it usually works is this. So let's let's say that... uh, Well, you'll just use my family for an example. So uh, several... Several years ago, like three years ago, our daughter, Grace Ann, became a member of Bullet Lick. I assume that her name is still on the rolls because I don't think that she and her husband have yet joined with another church. 
But other than maybe a special occasion, she probably hasn't been here for two years. When she got engaged to her husband, then they began looking for a church where they could be involved together, and they did that with with, uh, our approval. We, We understand that that's what's going to happen. But what if five years from now she still hasn't joined a church? Well, she needs to be taken off of our rolls because she's not a member of this church. She doesn't come here. She doesn't contribute here. She doesn't serve here. She needs to be taken off of our rolls. She's not a member here anymore. Even, even now that is the case. And uh, I hope that they're going to join a Baptist church very soon where they've recently been attending, but they've kind of had trouble finding where they're going to settle. So, uh, yeah, using my own family as an example, uh, it, it should not cause permanent offense to someone when they're removed from a church where they haven't been for two or three years. And so, but, but sometimes there's a, like say a mom and a dad who are members of a church and their, their boy made a profession of faith and got baptized in Bible school 20 years ago. And somehow they think that it is going to squash that, that boy's attitude. He's, he's a grown man now, 25 years old, but if he if he gets kicked out of the church, then he is permanently going to hate Christians. And uh, I would say that is, that's unreasonable. I, I've seen some instances where uh, practicing church discipline made people come back to church, people who were in the family. After my experience at the Cornfield Church, then uh, there was a, a man that I've remained friends with through the years, and he said, you know, a lot of my family got uh, expelled from the church when we were practicing church discipline. And more, they were mad. All of them were mad. But here's the thing. None of them were going to church before they got excluded. And now they all go to church. They all go to church somewhere. There was a, a man in our church who got into an argument with his wife, and he hit her, and she called the police. And the police came and took him to jail. And uh, one of the members of the church said, hey, did you hear that so-and-so's in jail? I said, no. So that morning I go to the jail. He's already been let out. So then I go to his, uh, I go to his place where he lives. And his wife is there. And, and I say to him, you know, told, they told me what happened. And I said, well, you know, it, it's publicly known that we can't have, that we can't have it thought that members at, at the Nine Mile Baptist Church can hit their wives. We don't approve of that. And, uh, and so you're going to need to come before the church and, uh, and uh, confess your sin and, and ask the church's forgiveness. He said, all right. And his wife said, nothing doing. None of your business. I said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but it is our business. Now, this wife had not ever been to church as long as I'd been pastor there. She had not ever come to church. And so I think it was the very next Sunday, the man who had hit her came to church and apologized and asked the church's forgiveness. We were reconciled with him. And then he immediately went to another church. But here's the thing. His wife went with him. She had never gone to church anywhere. And then she started going to church with him. Well, to me, that's a victory. And uh, we were sorry to lose him as a member at Nine Mile, but thankful that now his family has some unity and that they're going to church together. And uh, so 
We don't, they're, they're happy stories. We don't always have, have a happy story. There were other people who got, who got angry, and uh, I can't say they never came back because they weren't coming to begin with, but they made up their mind that they were not going to go to church anywhere. So there's this fear that disciplined persons will be permanently offended. You know, discipline is supposed to hurt. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11 says, No discipline for the present seems pleasant, but afterward it yields the, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Uh, and we just have to say, well, like Pro- Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-three says, He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. It is true that some persons may be permanently offended, but we must not put the entire church at risk for the sake of one individual. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6 says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's better to offend people than it is to offend Christ. But loving discipline often brings restoration. It does with children. It did at Corinth. The final question that I want to answer is, what happens when a church does not practice church discipline? Many people will be deceived about their spiritual condition. We, as Baptists, believe in a regenerate church membership. That means that we admit only saved persons to church membership, people that we believe are saved. Can we be wrong about it? We can be wrong about it. Uh, and when, when we are wrong about it, then we need to make sure that we follow the teaching of the Lord. When someone is not acting like a Christian, we can't make the final judgment, yes, you are a Christian or no, you're not a Christian. But what we do have the responsibility to say is you're not acting like a Christian and you may not be a member of the church as long as you are not acting like a Christian in this way. If we just simply allow people to remain on the church role without ever disciplining them in any way, then it is likely that many of them will be deceived because at Baptist churches, they hear the doctrine of once saved, always saved, and they think, well, I know I ain't living right, but uh, once saved, always saved, and I'm okay. And uh, so I do believe in the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer, uh, and, uh, but also believe that the Bible teaches that uh, persons who are not behaving like unbelievers may not remain members of the church. What happens when a church does not practice church discipline? Many people will be deceived about their spiritual condition. Secondly, the church may become filled with and controlled by unspiritual, if not unsaved, members. So one of the uh, outstanding examples of how this happens is that Sometimes uh, when there is a contentious issue that's going to be discussed at a business meeting, suddenly people who have not been to the church for years are called to come and they all vote against the thing. And uh, the, the few Christians in the church are outvoted by people who are, who are coming out from the highways and byways, not been at the church for years, and they push, uh, they push an unspiritual agenda through or they keep a spiritual agenda from being implemented. Uh, that's an extreme example. It usually happens more gradually than that, that the church just becomes filled with people who regard the church as a, a nice place where I've got friends and it's something like a social club and, uh, and the Word of God is not valued and so it just becomes increasingly unspiritual. If discipline is not practiced, then others will be emboldened to sin. The Bible says, "...those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear." 
And then there's also the possibility that the whole church may be implicated in the guilt of unrepentant church members. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, the Lord says to Ezekiel, I have set you as a watchman on the wall. And when you see the enemy coming, if you announce that the enemy is coming, you blow the trumpet of alarm and no one listens to you, the enemy will come and destroy them, but you will have cleared yourself. But if you see the enemy coming and you do not blow the trumpet of alarm and the enemy comes and slaughters that town, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. And so I think that that principle also encourages us to practice church discipline, that uh, when we see someone engaged in a, a sinful lifestyle and we just remain persistently quiet about it, it's possible that we may be implicated in the guilt of their unrepentant life. God's name is dishonored. People, you know, will say, I don't go to church because there's nothing but hypocrites there. And uh, the sad thing is, sometimes that's true. But we don't want it to be like that. We don't want to be a church full of of hypocrites. Uh, You know, we don't want people to say, well, I know so-and-so, and and, uh, she's a member down there at Bullet Lick, and, and this is the way she is living, and they know about it, and they're not doing anything about it. I've got no desire to be part of a church like that. Um, we, we don't want the accusations of insincerity to be true. It's possible that the entire church would be judged. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, people were taking the Lord's Supper in a way that was dishonorable. And, and the Bible says, and that's why many of you are sick and some of you have even fallen asleep, which means you've died. That's because, because you are not carefully guarding the Lord's table. Finally, it's possible that we may even cease to be a church in God's eyes. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse, tw- and verse 5, uh, Paul, uh, not Paul, but uh, John, Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus, said, you've left your first love, and he, and he says to them, therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The removal of the lampstand is I'm no longer going to be affiliated with that group of people. And so we we certainly don't want that to happen. We don't want to cease to be a church in God's eyes. One of my favorite uh, systematic theologians is a man whose name was John L. Dagg. He was a Southern Baptist theologian who wrote in the 1800s. And he quotes with approval a statement, When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Not every group of people that meets together calling itself a church is a church. I think that there are three essential legs upon which a church stands. One is the preaching of the gospel. Two is the administration of the ordinances in accordance with the teaching of the Bible. And three is church discipline. Sometimes uh, churches have an extraordinarily low standard for church discipline. I think it at least must be we require people to make a profession of faith before they join the church. But it ought to be more than that. It ought to be that when we, see, <clears throat> when we see that a person who has professed faith is not living a life of holiness that is characterized by someone who has faith, 
then we are going to deal with that person. We're going to try to speak to them, and if uh, ultimately less drastic measures are not effective, then we will take the very drastic step of expelling them from church membership. Now, I know that I've got lost people in, in the congregation today, and uh, it may sound to you like, wow, that's kind of a mean bunch. But let me ask you this. Do you think that if you become a follower of Christ, your life should change? I think most people recognize that. I think most lost people say, yeah, if I really become a follower of Christ, my life should change. Well, this whole sermon is essentially about that principle that you know to be true. If you really become a follower of Christ, your life should change. You should become a member of a church, and you should become a member of a church that preaches the Bible, that preaches the gospel, that administers the ordinances in accordance with Christ's teaching, and who is going to lovingly hold you accountable to being a follower of Jesus. But before all that happens, you, should, you, you need to get right with the Lord. There's no point in your joining a church, even a good church. You might be able to fool me and the others who interview you, but you can't fool the Lord. And so, even today, hearing a sermon like this about church purity, even today, say, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to be forgiven of my sins. Trust in Christ. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Follow Him in baptism and in every other way that He directs you. Today uh, is the